It's always interesting at the the beginning of one of these talks when I'm up here sitting and you know there's everyone gathers and then there's the click as I turn on the microphone and this this kind of pregnant pause and you know you maybe you think I'm sitting here in this space of open empty awareness waiting for the dhamma to flow through But I'm just watching the intention to speak arise and pass. And then another one arises and passes. And finally, one of them to date has been strong enough that I actually start to, <laughs> to speak. But I, I can tell one of these times I'm just going to sit here and just watch those intentions arise and pass. And, you know, it could go for quite a while. You know, it could be. It's a John Cage talk of 45 minutes of, am- <laughs> 45 minutes of ambient sounds. But I have this feeling it will be, you know, my, my uh, what do they call it? My, uh, you make him help me here. My, no, there's, but there's a beautiful way to express it. Huh? Masterpiece. My masterpiece, my, uh, yeah, something. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it'll, it'll be, without a doubt, the finest Dharma talk I ever gave. <laughs> I don't know how my colleagues will feel about it. We'll see. Mm. At any rate, <laughs> we could see, you know, and think about the unfolding of, of this, of our practice and, and the sort of movement of along this path in, in a few different ways, a number of ways. And, you know, in different traditions, it's expressed in different ways. And, um, you know, we can think in terms of progress of insight and uh, stages of enlightenment, perhaps that as a model makes sense at times, or um, opening to Buddha nature, or resting in great natural perfection of mind, and and different ways that that, um, different beings, different teachers, different traditions might speak about uh, the understanding that can come through through the uh, practice and the unfolding of the path. And and there's one way that I think is always useful, always useful and powerful way to see uh, the practice and, and its unfolding. And that has to do with uh, the, the um, development, the ripening of what are called the paramis, or paramita is the Sanskrit word. And these are, um, in this tradition, it's said that there are 12 beautiful, noble qualities that... Um, in the stories, the tradition says the Buddha developed these over countless lifetimes. And um, there are a collection of stories, Jataka tales, uh, telling of the, the Bodhisatta, the Buddha-to-be, taking birth in different uh, situations, often in, in the animal realm, and developing uh, a lifetime spent developing one of these beautiful qualities. And this is from uh, the text in a place where uh, Venerable Sariputta, the, one of the Buddha's chief disciples, has asked him a question, um, this question, how many qualities are there, Lord, issuing in Buddhahood? And the Buddha replies, there are, Sariputta, ten qualities issuing in Buddhahood. What are the ten? Giving, Sariputta, is a quality issuing in Buddhahood. Virtue, <coughs> renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, resolve, loving-kindness and equanimity are qualities issuing in Buddhahood. 
So these are the ten paramis. And we could say that when the the culmination of the path, you could say in the awakened, enlightened heart, mind, that these these are fully developed. They're brought to a, a state of perfection. So it's said that the Buddha spent entire lifetimes just uh, working on one of these. And I think reflecting in this way, holding the path, it expands the, uh, the breadth of what we might think of as practice and helps also cut through a very strong tendency that is often there to be constantly kind of judging and assessing our practice, evaluating our experience and what's going on, looking for evidence of progress in some way or other. And we do this so often and, and get into patterns of mentally comparing ourselves with others, other yogis on the retreat, you know, looking, is it working? Am I doing it right? Everyone else is clearly doing it right. You know, I don't, know, I don't think I'm doing it right. I'm, am I getting it? Everyone else is getting it. If they all get it, will there be any left? For me, if they've gotten it all, whatever, whatever it is. <laughs> you know, and, and we judge our experience. We judge what's happening. We judge ourselves based on our perception of our experience. So often, as though that was what was important. And we, we can miss a lot of, uh, a lot of what's actually happening through our willingness to just keep at the practice, to come back and begin again and again, for example, to our willingness to show up and meet our life in each moment, just as it is. And these qualities of um, the paramis are being uh, unf- developed throughout our practice, no matter what's happening, no matter what our assessment of it may be. I think seeing the path in this way is, it's very, um, it's, it's much more widespread in, uh, in some of the Asian countries where I've spent time at least. There's, um, people speak about this way and think about uh, the ripening of parami and someone whose parami is ripe in a certain way or, or strong in a certain area. And I think this has at least something to do with the, the kind of commonly held and understood uh, view of seeing the practice uh, unfolding over lifetimes. It's very, um, it's just woven into these cultures, you know, and there's this understanding of rebirth that permeates these cultures a lot. And whether or not that's meaningful to us, it's, it's not something that's meaningful to all of us, maybe not to very many of us, but we can see it in terms of a single lifetime. We don't have to have a belief in, in, Uh, rebirth. In a way, our lives are a continual flow of of births and lives and deaths and rebirths. And we can go from, you know, heavenly realms of of pleasure and bliss and uh, clarity of mind to the depths of anguish and torment in, in just a single sitting period. You know, how many how many lives do we go through in a day in this way? We take birth into these different uh, mind states, you could say, these different realms. And through this movement, through this ebb and flow, there's this constant development of these qualities of the paramis. 
And sometimes we meet people where one or another of these seems to be highly developed. They seem to have come into life with, with a lot of one or more of these. You know, people who just seem to have a lot of energy or just be kind and generous just by nature. It just seems to be their nature, uh, things like this. You know, my mother was a, a wonderful example of this for me um, in you know, reflecting when I was older. And, and uh, she had a lot of these qualities, very highly developed. Energy, for example, she had, I didn't notice it when I was a kid, but she had this amazing amount of energy. She, you know, she grew up in w- at a time um, when, you know, she was, she took care of the house. She did most of that. My father didn't do that. He worked a lot. And so she did pretty much all the cooking and she was a good cook. She made a beautiful garden and raised uh, some of, at least some of the food that we ate. And she was a g- really fine potter. She was very skilled in ceramics. And she, she made almost all the dishes that we used in the house she made. <laughs> And she was part of a cooperative crafts gallery as part of that, uh, where she sold her things and along with other people. She, um, she, she could sew and knit. She made a lot of her own clothes. She um, volunteered, did all these great volunteer projects, delivering meals to people who were homebound and teaching sewing and other things in poor communities. And uh, she was a draft counselor during the Vietnam War. She was involved in volunteering in that way. And um, she had a lot of friends. She, she raised four kids. And, you know, it just was, that's just the way she was. She's just my mom. It, but when I list it like that, it sounds kind of superhuman almost. But she just, it wasn't like she was driven or hyper or, or something. It was just the way she was. It was just, um, just her nature to be like this. It was easy and, and very graceful way of, of going through life with all of that. And, and some people we, we know of, they just seem to have come into life in this way. And um, sometimes we meet people uh, on retreat, fellow yogis or as a teacher I meet people and they just seem to have a lot of abilities in, uh, in certain ways. And um, you know, the Asian teachers would say, well, the parami is just very ripe. And as a very matter of fact, oh, they just have a lot of that parami. I speak about it in this way. And there's an understanding that what people are not the same. We're not the same, that this is varies. But this way of um, thinking of, the, of, of how practice unfolds, develops is, as I said, it broadens uh, the scope of how we hold practice because we can narrow it down to just the meditation you know, we spend so much time, there's so much focus on that at a retreat like this. And I think it's essential that we, we hold the practice with as wide a view as possible and realize and remind ourselves that the Buddha never just taught meditation. His, his vision and understanding and way he taught was always much wider than that. There's another model for seeing uh, the unfolding of uh, our practice. Brian, I think in an earlier uh, talk spoke about the model of uh, sila samadhi panya, which relates very directly to the, the uh, Eightfold Noble Path, the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path as the, the, uh, the manifestation of that uh, movement. There's another way that it's seen as uh, three trainings, dana sila bhavana. 
It's another way it's spoken about. And, and said that the Buddha taught this way, uh, especially for uh, lay people, which is most of us, not all of us, but for those of us who haven't gone forth into uh, the life of a, um, a nun, nun or monk. And in Buddhist countries, uh, this way of, of um, this still is, is very much uh, a model that's used and parents uh, often uh, teach their kids from a very young age in this way of dana, which is generosity or giving, sila, uh, ethical conduct. And bhavana, that word means mind development or mental cultivation, and that's the meditative practices. And, and you see parents with young kids uh, offering uh, alms to nuns and monks or going to the monasteries and, and offering, and they help very young kids, you know, to, to offer a spoon of rice into someone's bowl or things like this, and they're trained from very early age to practice this. Dana and Sila all are, are the first two in the list of the paramis. It's not that they, they go linearly, it's, it's not a linear progression, but they are listed first, Dana, generosity or giving, Sila, conduct. And, and they have a very um, essential role in uh, this sort of foundation that the practice rests upon this is certainly one aspect of their power in our lives and, and support for our practice. And, and we might see this uh, functioning in terms of sila fairly easily. And Brian spoke about this quite uh, in a quite beautiful way, I think, in an earlier talk about how sila informs and, and uh, uh, is woven into the path and forms its foundation also. It might be a bit less obvious how generosity would function in this way. There's uh, one teaching where the Buddha recommended that one give with this thought, that this is an adornment for the mind and a support for the mind. This practice of giving is an adornment for the mind, for the heart, and a support. I I love this thinking of giving as an adornment for the mind. I think there's a way that this practice really does beautify the mind, beautifies and purifies the mind and heart through the cultivation of, of this, the wholesome mind states that are involved, that are associated with giving. And it does serve as a support for the mind in a number of ways. There's the one of the simplest, maybe more obvious ways that we could see um, giving as a support for the, for the mind and for our practice is as, um, in terms of, of the way that it functions as an expression in the world of, the, uh, of non-greed or non-grasping, these wholesome factors. Uh, it, it's very direct, tangible, pragmatic counter to the um, energy of clinging, grasping attachment in the mind strengthens this wholesome factor of non-greed, non-clinging. And in this way, it's a, it's a force that moves directly in the, uh, towards liberation in our lives. So it really can be seen as a practice of freedom. Bhikkhu Bodhi said this, giving has a particularly intimate connection to the entire movement of the Buddha's path. For the goal of the path is, is the destruction of greed, hate, and delusion and the cultivation of generosity directly debilitates greed and hate while facilitating that 
pliancy of mind that allows for the eradication of delusion. So it has this very uh, direct um, relationship to really the heart of the teachings, the Four Noble Truths in terms of the cause of suffering and seeing that it's the force of craving, clinging, grasping in the mind that binds us to the wheel of samsara that leads to suffering, this root cause there. Practicing generosity functions as a direct counter to this, learning to let go, practicing non-grasping, non-clinging, non-attachment. You know, we, I think modern Western culture in, in some ways um, kind of conditions this, this tendency to measure ourselves in terms of um, stuff that we've managed to accumulate in many ways. It might be possessions or wealth, but it might be experiences or stuff that we do. And, you know, we can, you know, show off everything we've done or experienced or all the stuff we've gotten. And, and in a way, it's less frequent that we relate to um, maybe kindness and generosity in our lives um, and measure our, our worth in terms of those, maybe sometimes. And we see, do see them as qualities that we would admire in ourselves or in others. But a lot of the time in, in the culture, they're seen also maybe almost as signs of weakness, you know, and there's Certainly in certain business kinds of situations, there's this real admiring of, of going for what you want, you know, even at the expense of others. And it shows drive and ambition and, and these qualities are highly prized in certain situations at least. And I think, I think this, this does has a, have an impact. This you know, has a power that we may not see, but you know, at the end of the day, what really is going to matter to us? And, you know, well, well, the stuff we've managed to get, even if it's interesting, beautiful experiences, is that what we're going to really see that matters? Is that where we'll find happiness? What's going to be what we turn to and, and see as having been worth doing? I think we can make the mistake of thinking that subjects like dana and sila, generosity and ethical conduct, that these we can put them in the realm of of kind of preliminary basic teachings, you know. There's something, yeah, okay, we we get them in place and we we understand their value and then we kind of set it aside and we focus on on the meditation as though that's the real thing and um, as though they're just aids to and supports to our meditation practice, that that's their function. And I think this is is a narrow limiting view which um, misses a whole range of, of their power and potency in our lives and their, um, really their, their, their um, they infor- can inform our lives in a much broader way than that. Last year, or maybe it was earlier this year, fairly recently I was teaching uh, a long retreat at uh, Spirit Rock and uh, Carol Wilson was uh, one of the co-teachers there dear friend, and uh, I decided to interview her. And we often quote the Buddha or Bhikkhu Bodhi or some Ajahn Chah, but I decided I'd interview Carol. Uh, she was lying down on the floor at this time, so this these are wisdom from Carol from the reclining posture. <laughs> 
but actually it's a it's a lovely quotation <laughs> so i'll read i'll read i asked her i don't know what the question was but it had to do with something about what i'm talking about it starts uh, well anyway i'll read you the answer you'll get what the question was out of it i think i asked her about the fact that we often see donna and sila as these kind of preliminary practices and and did she how did she what did she think about that and she said Donna and Sila are not in any way merely preliminary practices. They are a way of living one's life, of purifying the mind stream. The more I practice, the more I see into the subtlety of the way they inform my life. They are intrinsic to awakening. If one were just to practice Donna and Sila with the intention to really watch the mind and heart, one would discover that they are in and of themselves liberation practices. It's all about purification. The pure mind sees Nibbana. And, and I, uh, this really spoke to me because I, I feel so much th- this way that um, my sense of valuing these practices and reflecting on their, uh, the way they inform my life has only grown over the time of my practice. And my sense, I do not in any way hold them as this kind of preliminary or foundational practice only. They're constantly being refined as we walk this path. And they're woven into the fabric of the practice at every step of the way. And their power, potentially at least in our lives, is really vast. I've been fortunate over uh, quite a number of years to um, spend time traveling and living for periods of time in South and Southeast Asia. Uh, spent, I've spent uh, some sh- shorter periods of time, but meaningful periods of time living as a, a bhikkhu, uh, a Buddhist monk. We say monk, although that's kind of a misnomer, as an alms mendicant, wearing similar robes to Bhante here, but not not nearly for the length of time that he has been in robes, but I have lived that way for periods of time and, um, and other extended times, long pilgrimages to the Buddhist sites in India and uh, different things like this, and helping with a retreat um, in Upper Burma um, over many, many years now, where I've gone, not every year, but, but uh, a lot of years for the past 15 years or more, also time in Thailand. And, And I think it was when I uh, began to spend more extended periods of time in these places um, that I really began to uh, notice the way that um, the practice of generosity uh, really began to understand it in a different way and its power began to touch my life. I think especially perhaps when I was on the receiving end of it more than perhaps uh, on the end of, of making the offerings. And in Buddhist countries, at least in some, yeah, it's quite widespread, the the practice of giving is woven into the culture in a different way than we see in the West. Um, And there's a real understanding, a valuing of dana, of of this practice, um, that's very powerful and inspiring to see and be part of. And this isn't to say that, that there's not generosity in the West, that's not true at all. And there are abundant examples of amazing generosity that we see. And, and the huge outpouring of uh, 
at times when of natural disaster and relief efforts, uh, things like that, and all the foundations and aid groups that exist, and they do so much good in the world. You know, the the amount of money that is offered this way um, is is incredible. It's huge. <laughs> and people who volunteer their time in, uh, in service uh, to do good deeds. And, and this kind of giving usually takes the form of kinds of philanthropy, of um, uh, volunteerism, of, of doing good deeds, has that flavor. And, and this kind of generosity does lots of good, but it can also, in a way, tend to feed um, feelings of, of separation in terms of self and other. And, um, you know, it's, it's something good to do to help those who are in less fortunate or in difficult circumstances. And, and in a way, it's like they're there and I'm here and I'm offering. And there's, there's a sense of, of self and other built into that. And sometimes in, in Buddhist countries, it's, it's held very differently. And there's a way that it's so naturally part of life that it, and it fosters a sense of connection and um, it actually counters this sense, this feeling of self and other. There's, there's this joy and dignity in the act of giving and receiving that flows and there's this sense of mutuality there that is quite powerful at times. In, in the text, there are different examples given of, of what can be is said to be wise giving. One of these is giving with the clear understanding, holding in mind the understanding that generous actions bring beneficial results. And reflection on this idea of uh, merit, concept of merit, which is, is throughout, it's woven into the teachings, it's spoken about all over the place. This idea of merit, of meritorious, of wholesome, skillful, kusala actions. The Pali word for merit is punya. And it's, it's, it's all, out, all throughout the teachings, but I think it's often misunderstood uh, in the West to some extent. I, I certainly know for myself when I first encountered this idea of merit, um, I didn't want anything to do with it. I, at a time, actually, I was, uh, I was, had gone to Northern California. I met um, Venerable Ajahn Amaro in England in 1994, I think it was. Yeah, and he, in his persuasive way, convinced me that I should come and help. Uh, with um, he was coming with three other monks, and they were going to spend the rains period, this, uh, 12 weeks, three lunar months of. Uh, what's called the vasa, the rains, which, where the, the nuns and monks in the Theravada tradition stay in one place. They determined to do that. And he was going to come um, and spend the rains. This was the year, uh, this was before the Abayagiri Monastery was, uh, was started in California. So I, I went and um, helped prepare a place. I did a lot of work. I, we had to, it was way out in the wilds and I did a lot of we, we had a spring for water and I had to plumb and set up tanks to gather water and bring it to a kitchen and, and bring it to where the monks were living and set up the places where they were going to live and uh, finish out a cooking shack and put in uh, a way to 
fuel for a, a tank for gas and stove and all kinds of stuff. And I worked uh, not by myself with a, a lot of other people too. But I kind of was the, I said, I'll do it. You know, so I was in charge and making it happen. And then I stayed for that whole period and uh, made sure that there was a meal every day and that everything happened uh, to, so they could spend the rains there. And, um, and people periodically said, oh, there's so much merit in this for you. And I, I, I did, I thought, no, I don't, I don't, as though I were doing it, um, you know, feeding some celestial bank account or something. And I, 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 you know, as though I were doing it for that reason rather than just for the goodness of it or, or something. And, and I misunderstood it, what it was about. But it really, it's just an understanding uh, that good things we do have, have a power. It's like, a, it goes to the, the teachings on, on karma, kamma, that wholesome, beneficial um, actions yield good results, yield wholesome, beneficial results. And, and so um, useful, life-giving, skillful actions they have a power in our lives that extends beyond the scope of the and time of the deed and, and influence and uh, feed into our, our lives in a way that informs the present moment and the future as well. It's an understanding. An understanding that, that there is this merit that's um, associated with any wholesome action one might take. And so when we practice generosity, we're, we're planting the seeds for our future happiness and for the future happiness of others. And it doesn't, Im- having an understanding and appreciation for this doesn't imply that we, we practice giving because we're expecting this, something in return, but it's an understanding that this is just the natural unfolding of things. So we acknowledge the power and really delight in this, the power of goodness, how it can inform our lives. And then we can also dedicate and offer this merit and another practice of generosity that flows from that, where we offer this merit for the goodness, the happiness, the welfare, liberation of all beings, of specific beings and other being, all beings. And so we, we uh, bring to mind um, our highest aspiration that may we, may all beings uh, realize freedom and may this merit support and inform that movement. And we connect to others through our wishes for their welfare and happiness. This quality of bodhicitta that Brian spoke about earlier. Another example of what is considered wise giving is giving with the aim of enhancing one's uh, efforts and movement towards uh, awakening, towards enlightenment. It's very closely related to actually have this in mind when we practice giving. And... um, one of my friends had a, a kind of striking uh, uh, teaching on this uh, when she came to the retreat in, uh, that I mentioned in Upper Burma at the Chazwa Monastery. And Sayada Ulakana, uh, who is the abbot and the, the main teacher for that retreat, um, she was talking to him about making a, a donation to uh, offer a meal. And he, he said, you have to um, hold it in your mind. May I'm making this offering. Um, with the aspiration to realize Nibbana, which she had never considered that as a possibility, and, but he wouldn't let her do it otherwise. Said, you have to, you have to hold it in this way. And there's a, a Pali saying, idam me punyam, maga pala nyana sapachayo hotu, 
we say at the end of the Refuge and Precepts chant, idam me silam, magapala nyanasapachayo hotu, idam me punyam, it just substitute uh, merit, may this merit of mine be the, um, uh, the cause and condition for my realization of the path and its fruit. And anytime you go anywhere to uh, a monastery or nunnery and make an offering, uh, you, you have to repeat after them as you give it uh, words to the effect, may this offering lead to my enlightenment. May it be a benefit to me in that way and to, and to all beings. So we can give with this connection to an aspiration to realize freedom. And, and may this support that movement. I'll be going to Burma uh, again in uh, this winter. Rebecca's going as well, I think, this year. I haven't been for a couple of years, but I, I have gone a lot over the years. And I know there's a lot of, I'm going to tell stories about, this talk has a lot of stories about my time there. And there's a lot of, of very disturbing news that's come out of Burma. There's a lot of strife there. Um, and I want to acknowledge that. It's not, it's not, perfect there and there's a lot um, that's difficult and disturbing um, in that's going on but there's a lot of um, beauty and I have a, had an association with that country over many many years and so um, I'll be speaking uh, about uh, that uh, and uh, some of the experiences I've had there that have touched me and informed my life and practice in a very deep way. So I, I've helped with this retreat, as I mentioned, and I've had times of practicing, living as a monk there, doing my own retreat time there, work with a couple of very small um, grassroots aid projects there where we raise money, um, mostly supporting, one of them mostly supporting uh, very poor nuns and nunneries and, and schools that the nuns have started in communities where there are no schools, providing a uh, possibility for children to uh, get some education where they wouldn't be able to, supporting hospital and uh, schools, things like that. And I'm struck every time I go to that country by the uh, kindness and generosity of the people, uh, even and maybe even especially those who are very poor. And and in these countries, in in Buddhist countries, there's the tradition that the teachings are offered. Uh, very much for free. And, and so in meditation centers, uh, practice centers, there's no charge. It's always run entirely on dana and, and the meal dana being one of the main ways that that's supported. You know, and we have that lovely tradition of offering a meal that's come more and more in the West. There's always a board like that and people's names there and the offering. It's, it's I love, I really love that. And, uh, it's interesting, you know, at some places, especially certain times of year when a lot of people go and it's seem seen as a very auspicious time to practice, um, it can be hard to, to get a spot to offer. You know, like during the rains period, a lot of people come to practice. And uh, one of my friends went to a monastery, and a lot of people, you know, they get very full. There can be hundreds of people. One of my friends who had gone and was going to spend some time a uh, long period of practice had actually taken temporary ordination as a monk and before uh, doing so he he wanted to while he was still handling money 
uh, offer a meal. And he went to the office uh, where they handle that thing. And, and they said, well, th- there's, n- you'll have to, there's no space during this entire uh, period. There, there, all the meals have already been offered. You'll have to do something afterwards. And, and this was for, I think he said there were 800 people there being supported <laughs> every day who had to eat. And it was mostly from the surrounding villages and uh, those kinds of places. Not entirely, but a lot from that. During the time, one of the periods when I was living as a monk, um, I used the word alms mendicant. Uh, Mendicant means one who is basically a beggar, we would say. One who uh, depends on alms, daily offerings. Uh, this is true for uh, Bante. His meal is offered every day, and if no one feels like offering, he he, w- he won't get anything. So, uh, and you all are taking part in that. He doesn't get to keep food overnight or have it in some other way. That's part of his rule, his training. And I was living that way. And so, in 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 the place where I was living at that time, I was going uh, walking every day to get alms, and I carried a bowl. And uh, that's right livelihood, if you're living that way. And um, there are very clear rules about how you do that. You cannot ask for anything. You can't go up to houses. You can stand in the street outside, and if someone notices you and feels so moved, they can come and offer something. But, but you, you, that's, you know, and there's other rules about how you go on alms. You have to go barefoot and you, you carry what is yours, which is the robes and the bowl. That's all, all you really own. And, you know, I would make the same round uh, every day for months, many, many months, most of a year. And um, I got to know the, the p- different people. And, and sometimes it was very, the way people would offer, it was very perfunctory, you know, here's a monk, plop, scoop of rice. And, uh, but some of the people, the way they offered was so beautiful and, and there was such care and um, dignity in the way they would offer. It was humbling to feel worthy of receiving it. I remember one woman, she lived in a very, by herself in a very small little bamboo shack, just, you know, just big enough to kind of lie down, <laughs> probably not much bigger than that, really little. And, um, you know, she would, she would come out and bow in the dirt, in the road in front of me every time. Now that's, that's, that brings up a lot, you know, to feel worthy of someone doing this. And then she would offer me, you know, sometimes it was like one little spoon of rice or a tiny little dried cooked fish, you know, the size of a little guppy in your fish tank. And one day, just, uh, I remember one day she just offered me a flower from her yard. And but she did it with this incredible dignity and um, grace and sense of really, I think, understanding the power of this. One of the lines in the reflection on the qualities of the Sangha in, in a, is a reflection that's done often uh, as part of the daily chanting in the monasteries. It's the last of the... Um, our last line in the reflection of the qualities of the Sangha, it's anuttaram punyaketam lokasa. And it means, uh, one way it's translated is, uh, they give occasion for incomparable goodness to arise in the world. And, and I often wondered what this meant. And then I, at least at this time, I thought, oh, it's 
part one meaning at least, one aspect of that is giving occasion for uh, people to practice this beautiful, um, this beautiful practice of giving. It gives that occasion. And there's such goodness in that. There's no way I'm going to get through this whole talk. <laughs> I'll tell this one story. It's very poignant and brings up a lot of emotion, but it's, it's a beautiful a- illustration of uh, the power that some people, um, that they, they hold in their hearts when, when uh, practicing dana giving. This was a young woman on my alms round. At this time I was living, um, I had the practice where I would only eat once a day and only from the alms food that I gathered. I didn't take any other food. And uh, it was a poor village and I had, I had been going on alms round and then just bringing the, f- the food back and turning it into the monastery kitchen. And then I, I thought, well, I'd like to just eat this food that's given to me. And it's one of the, it's a, it's a, a kind of um, renunciate uh, practice that is allowed to, one of, it's called dutanga in austerity, to live only on alms food one meal a day. And I told myself, if tomorrow I get anything more than just rice, I'll start. And I got just rice and one tiny thin slice of papaya. So I was, I said, well, I said I'd do it. So I started then. And, and it was very incredible over months. Some days I would get, the smallest I got was rice and one t- small ball of what's called jaggery, which is uh, palm sugar. And then other days I'd have this abundance of food. It was always different every day. And one of the houses I stopped at where they, uh, there was a young woman who always offered something every day for months and months. And um, at first she would come out to the gate in the yard and be on the road. And you know I tried to have my timing be predictable. And, um, and then she would come out and have people were helping her and she was getting weaker and it was clear that she was ill. And uh, at a certain point, um, they told me, waved me into the yard. So if you're invited, you can go in. You have to be invited in. So I would go in closer to the house because she uh, was getting weak and couldn't walk all the way out. And then finally, um, she would be offering sitting in a chair and I'd have to get down low enough so she could offer. And, And no one would ever offer from a seated position unless they couldn't stand. And then one day when I went by, she didn't come. She wasn't there and she had passed away. But until she was too weak to offer at all, she, she um, wanted to do this. It was part of her day and uh, the, the um, appreciation for the power of it in her life was so um, clear there and so uh, inspiring and humbling to be part of that exchange. And it, you know, things like this can bring up a lot uh, in one's heart, you know, receiving alms in this way or receiving the generosity. There's so much generosity from very poor people like who come, a whole f- extended family will come and stay up all night cooking in the monastery to offer the meal. And then they'll all sit up, there'll be 25 people watching you eat. And it's audience and we're not used to having an audience and they're, they're just really watching you eat, you know. <laughs> and they're just so happy to see you eating this food that they've, it may have taken them a long time to save up to be able to afford to do that. It's a big thing. And um, to feel, it's very, it's kind of weird, you know, at first to have an audience, but there's, there's an appreciation for um, 
the joy and, and providing them this opportunity that grows with that kind of experience. But it can bring up a lot in one being receiving offerings in this way. And, um, you know, that's the other half. If there's giving, there's receiving. What's that about? And the patterns and conditionings we have. And, you know, even when I was living as a monk and I was, had given up possessions and, and money, I still had resources. I had family and friends who would have come and helped me. But, and, and I was receiving from people who didn't have anything to fall back on, on in the ways that I might have had. And, you know, receiving in these ways, it was the realize, realization to me that it wasn't personal. It wasn't, they weren't offering it to me. <laughs> They were offering it to these robes that I was wearing when I was living that way, to the triple gem, to their faith in this, their understanding of that. But we can have attitudes around receiving and kind of, um, you know, sort of thanks, you know, people, we, we don't want to, um, you know, kind of dismissive or, or kind of a, um, a way that, there's embarrassment or we think we're being humble by saying, oh, it was nothing and being dismissive um, when, we, when we offer and gratitude is expressed. But I think it's great to practice delighting in the goodness of offerings and um, delighting in the, in the joy of the giver and mudita uh, for their, uh, the, the, the good fortune they have to be able to offer. And it's good to reflect on skillful, wholesome actions. I've been talking about this a lot. And the Buddha recommended that one frequently bring to mind one's skillful deeds, one's generous actions, for example, one's sila. Not as a form of pride or ego building, but um, as a really wholesome acknowledgement, recognition of the beauty and power of this in our lives and of the pure mind states that uh, are being cultivated. This is from the Mahanama Sutta, a part of it, an excerpt. He's speaking to, uh, the Buddha is speaking to a householder, Mahanama, and he says, Furthermore, Mahanama, there's the case where you recollect your own generosity, thinking it is a gain, a great gain for me that among people overcome with the stain of possessiveness, I live at home, my awareness cleansed of the stain of possessiveness, freely generous, open-handed, delighting in being generous, responsive to requests, delighting in the distribution of alms. At any time when one is recollecting generosity, such one's mind is not overcome with greed, not overcome with aversion, not overcome with delusion. One's mind heads straight based on this, this generosity. And when the mind is headed straight in this way, based on uh, generosity, a disciple of the noble ones gains a sense of the goal, gains a sense of the Dhamma, gains joy connected with the Dhamma. In one who is joyful, rapture arises. In one who is rapturous, the body grows calm. In one whose body is calm, ex- uh, experiences, cease, e- experiences ease. One whose body is calm experiences ease. In one at ease, the mind becomes concentrated. Mahanama, you should develop this recollection of generosity while you are walking, while you are standing, while you are sitting, while you are lying down, while you are busy at work, while you are resting in your home crowded with children. That's pretty much all the time. 
develop this recollection of this goodness. And he speaks in the same way about sila, to really bring it to mind. And it's good to do this. It balances our view because our failings and shortcomings are often so glaringly obvious to us. And we can uh, overlook, diminish these good qualities and our good deeds. It's good to, it brings a more balanced view. Okay, one more story. I've spoken, and maybe Rebecca too, but we like to talk about the happy Sayadaw, this very old happy monk. He's the one who, who said, wandering mind? Oh, never mind. You just start again. I told that story. One time uh, I was working, managing this retreat at the Chaswa Monastery, and and everyone, uh, the who was everyone else there was going to go visit him. And I, I was, it was near the end of the retreat and I was supposed to speak about uh, the practice of giving dana to the, the yogis. And so I wanted to think about it. And they said, no, nah, don't, don't, just come with us. You don't need to think about it. And so I said, well, I'll come, but I, I'm going to, you have to let me ask Sayadaw a question about, um, about dana. So I, I went, uh, we went to pay respects. And after a point, I, I said, Saida, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be speaking to the yogis at the retreat about uh, dana later today. Do you have any advice for me? Because it's not so much in our culture in some ways. What could I say that might be useful? And he, there was a bowl of oranges next to him there. And he, he, he reached and grabbed one and threw it at me. And then he started throwing oranges at me. And he said, Donna, this is Donna. <laughs> Everything around here is Donna. He likes to gesture wildly. He said... <laughs> All of this is because of Donna. Without Donna, we wouldn't be here. None of this would be here. Nothing would be here. And I thought about it, and I thought, well, in his case, he's a monk. He doesn't have anything unless someone, you know, it all was given in different ways, and his lodgings and the, everything there. But then I thought, in my own life, so much, without, without that, I wouldn't be, be here. I wouldn't have been there. I wouldn't be here now. And all of the support uh, that has come to me in this free-handed, generous way, in so many ways, so much of my life, is this very direct reflection of the kindness and the generosity of others who have supported me through my life. Sometimes what seem like small, relatively insignificant acts of generosity have, can have far-reaching consequences. As I said, I was, this is another story, even though I said I was done. Um, but this is a story about the, the, this monastery and the retreat that I mentioned, Chaswa, and, and a thing, a project called the Metadana Project, an aid project that uh, began there. And this goes back to when um, Stephen Smith, who was um, one of the people who started that retreat, along with Sayadaw Ulakana, who I mentioned, who's a a very dear teacher of mine who passed away this uh, last spring. And um, Steve was on retreat and he was meditating in a cave and there was a construction project going on nearby. And often uh, in the poor uh, villages, one of the things that some of the young women do to earn money is they work as um, uh, kind of assistants to, uh, to masons, to building people who build with bricks. Um, carrying loads of bricks and they, they stack these 
loads of bricks on their heads and um, carry them all day long up up the hills there because everything's a hill and it's kind of amazing to see them with this they put a pad on their head of cloth and then they have this big stack of bricks and they just walk along so gracefully (laughs) and they just by the end of the day you can see how tired they are and so there was a young woman she was about 16 at that time named Jitsu and she saw this westerner who quite probably might have been the first westerner she'd ever seen (laughs) there weren't a lot of them in the and this goes back a ways around there and um, saw him meditating every day and and she decided she wanted to offer him something so she got him a coca-cola she heard he was an american and that's what they drink and uh, at that time at least maybe still a coca-cola was imported it was an imported thing so it was more than the local sodas and it probably cost about three days wage for her to buy it because um they don't they didn't earn much money they still don't and and she bought this coke and offered it to Stephen. and uh, he was very moved by this this offer he knew what it had cost and um and directly resulting from this offering this feeling of wanting to um, give back to the village. He felt he was being supported. Um, this was just one example of the way he felt supported there. He talked to Sayadaw and they, they came up with this Metadana project and, and all this great stuff over years of building a new school for the village. I was there for the groundbreaking for that. And because um, the old school used to get flooded out every monsoon season when the river rose and um, new school on higher ground and supporting three uh, small nunneries and uh, supporting um, projects at the hospital that Sayadaw started. And a lot of goodness over many, many years now that, that uh, arose out of this, just this offering of a can of Coca-Cola was the, the spark there. Mm, I have to stop. Mm. So there's all kinds of ways we can practice dana, giving generosity, you know. And sometimes we give materially when that's possible. Sometimes we give time and energy. We teach or work in different communities. Sometimes just allowing someone to be who they are is a great gift. This is a quotation I found from someone named Steve Goodyear. He said, we can give time, we can give our expertise, we can give our love, or simply give a smile. What does that cost? The point is, none of us can ever run out of something worthwhile to give. I was at a a place getting lunch last year in Worcester. I'd gone to run some errands, and I went into this place where you get a burrito. And I was kind of preoccupied with something and I was kind of ordering my food and this this one guy said, Do you, how about this, how about that, you know, and I was kind of said, no, some of that. And he said, how about a smile? And he had said this, this beautiful smile on his face and like, oh yeah, I'll take one of those. <laughs> you know, it just got me, it completely changed me. You know, I was, I was in this kind of, and I just like, oh yeah, how about a smile? That's a great offering sometimes. And it's said that the gift of the Dhamma surpasses all other gifts. And that's the gift that we are giving through our practice. All of us here, we are giving this gift to one another, to the world. 
It's a beautiful gift that we give through our uh, meditation, through our practice. And so if we really connect to all of the paramis, to uh, the power of dana and sila and all of these others in our lives, and, and we bring our attention and intention and really um, with the, with, and practice with the, uh, with the intention to understand and to really uh, watch the mind and heart, um, these practices are the practice of freedom, not just supports for that. And if we, um, and, and through these practices and cultivating this quality of connection, we start to see, uh, we really can take us directly to this, um, uh, the practice of bodhicitta that Brian spoke about so beautifully the other night and this understanding that our happiness and the happiness of others is not different, it's the same thing. And if we hold it in mind, then we um, practice with the motivation that our awakening be for the benefit of all beings. Dedicate our practice in this way. And then our whole practice becomes a gift. It's a gift to the world, a gift to all beings. So let's sit quietly for just another moment. So thank you for your kind attention. And uh, we have time for walking and then the chanting at nine o'clock. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.